Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Nasek. Hello, Jason. Come to me, Superman. If you dare, I defy you. Come, come and kneel before Zod. Zod! That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1980s superhero movie Superman 2, produced by Dove Mead Limited and International Film Productions. Distributed by Warner Brothers, it stars Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Margot Kidder, and Terrence Stamp. Directed by Richard Lester and Richard Donner, this movie is rated PG with a running time of two hours and seven minutes. For this episode, we will be discussing the original theatrical cut. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. The Man of Steel meets his match. Superman 2 broke opening day and first week box office records from coast to coast. And it doesn't take x-ray vision to see why. It's an exciting, surprise-packed epic that takes up where Superman leaves off and shows off spectacular new tricks that even surpass the original. This time, the Man of Steel battles a trio of super-powered Kryptonian do-batters who've invaded Earth. The result? A startling plot twist that ties in with Superman's past, and a duel above Metropolis that is a special effects fan's dream come true. Buses hurtle airborne through the city's steel and glass canyons. Pedestrians blow like confetti along sidewalks and huge electronic billboards explode in an eye-dazzling shower of sparks. Veteran director Richard Lester guides the film. And reprising their roles from Superman are Christopher Reeve as the legendary Superman, Margot Kidder as intrepid reporter Lois Lane, and Gene Hackman as delightfully demented arch-criminal Lex Luthor. They create a blend of thrills, humor, and humanity that makes Superman 2 great fun for the whole family. I thought the original Superman was terrific entertainment, says renowned film critic Roger Ebert, and so I was a little startled to discover I liked Superman 2 even more. Chances are, so will you. The Superman story of venerable 50 years young in 1988 just keeps getting better. Superman 2. Superman 2. Diving into a little superhero yes. movies. Absolutely. Loved that. What's on the box? That was from a VHS that was released, I believe, in 1987. Not the clamshell VHS that came out in 1983, if I am correct. That synopsis on that back of that clamshell box was uh, not quite as good as this one. I chose this one. Appreciate that. The adventure continues. Certainly does. All right, so let's move on to earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of Superman 2? All right, let's get into this film from 1980. Pretty good movie year, as it turns out, for us fans of the 80s genre. And here's a little preface for you, Bill Bant. I never read comic books as a kid. I just never got into them. I've never had an investment in them one way or another, let's say, like, DC versus Marvel, etc. Thus, I do not know the stories of the Superman comic books or the original comic being created by writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Shuster, which debuted the character of Superman in Action Comics number one, published in 1938. 
I never watched the original television show from 1952 starring George Reeves. What I know about Superman has always started with the original film in 1978 directed by Richard Donner, which I have always adored. Starring the one and only Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, and featuring the music of John Williams. And that's where my fandom of Superman began. I was a Superman movie fan for sure, but I just wasn't the, you know, run to the comic book store to grab the latest issue type of fan. That's all. Just clarifying. Now, earliest memories of Superman 2. I do have to begin with the indelible, the one and only Christopher Reeve. And I almost want to just leave it right there. He's the one and only Superman for me. Pretty sure I saw this one in the theater. I'm, I'm very confident that I did. And man, I mean, early memory. The, uh, just the idea of these three evil Kryptonians that were introduced to in the beginning of this film being sentenced to what is known as the Phantom Zone. They're sentenced to being stuck in this thin, small, square glass window pane known as the Phantom Zone. Our evil Kryptonians, Zod, Ursa, and Nan. That image of them trapped in that small glass prison and jettisoned into space really captured my imagination as a kid, and it really bothered me. It looked terribly uncomfortable and extremely cramped. Another early memory for me are just a lot of the scenes. I mean, I, I remember a great deal of this movie, the Eiffel Tower scene, the Niagara Falls scene, the Kryptonians on the moon versus the Earth astronauts and Russian astronaut, cosmonaut, I should say. I, of course, remember Superman giving up his powers for love and my feelings about that, my feelings about Superman revealing himself to Lois Lane or, or being found out by Lois Lane, sort of both, I suppose, and I thought it was pretty romantic for a minute as a kid, you know, and then I realized it kind of took the mystery out of it. Some of the playfulness or fun out of it for me. I was like, oh, that's cool. Somebody knows now that he's Superman. It's good. I, I like this for him and her for her. But now, no, no, I don't want, no, it's not mysterious anymore. That's not fun. That's how I felt. I kind of went back and forth on that. I, of course, remember the book and diner scenes with the thug Rocky, that big bully in his flannel and his truck driving idiocy. Anyway, I really loathed watching Superman getting his ass kicked in this movie. I hated that as a kid. It felt so innately wrong. It felt almost as if I was getting my ass kicked and being supremely embarrassed by it. I, of course, always remember the Fortress of Solitude. I just thought that was such a cool location made of like snow and ice and this incredible architectural sculpture, but it also looked so damn peaceful. Have to mention General Zod. Of course, I always thought he was such a great bad guy. Terrence Stamp loved him as General Zod. And strangely enough, although Gene Hackman is back in this film as the one and only Lex Luthor, and he's wonderful, as we all know, I don't really have an early memory attachment to him in this, and it makes sense. I'll probably get into that a little bit later. I've always loved this movie, Bill Bant, mainly because of its cool villains, as I mentioned, mainly Zod, and the fact that they were a real threat to Superman, and I felt that as a kid. I mean, I thought it was a good story, and again, I just have to say that Christopher Reeve is the man. I really looked up to him as a superhero, as a hero of cinema, and for me, he is the Superman. So I just adored this movie as a kid, 
and I was really looking forward to this revisit. What are your earliest memories of Superman 2? Well, I'm actually going to start with the original Superman. Sure. I actually remember going to the theater to see that one, and it was, I might have just turned six. And my mom took me, and we had some of the kids in the neighborhood with their moms, and we all went to see it. And I remember the two things that stood out from that movie was the super long beginning credits with all the names coming flying in. I was like, when is this movie going to start? How long are they going to show these credits for? And the one thing I confess to, when you talk about movies that you cried at, I cried as Superman at the very beginning when Superman's parents put him in that ship and send him off. I mean, I wasn't like blubbering crying, but I remember tears running down my face because I felt so bad that, well, Superman was leaving his parents. Those are the two things I certainly remember about that movie. And I remember we were kind of close in the front of the theater. I don't know why if it was because the theater was crowded or that's where we just decided to sit. But that's my memories of Superman. As for Superman 2, I know I saw it in the theater and I actually had to call my dad. Because I know he took me for the second one, but I couldn't remember when we saw it. I think it was when we were on vacation, our summer vacation in Wildwood. Back then, they used to have movie theaters on the boardwalk. They're all gone now. Now you have to literally leave the island to go see a movie. And that was such a big thing back then. But for the movie itself, part of it taking place in Niagara Falls, which I, I still have never been to. Of course, the three villains, which you mentioned. Neil before Zod. That line is just great. I don't know how many times Terrence Stamp says it in it, but love it every time. And I don't know how many times I've used that since when just joking with friends about stuff. Like you, Clark Kent getting his ass kicked in the diner. That was rough to watch. When you said Lex Luthor that you didn't remember Gene Hack. See, I remember Lex Luthor always with that white handkerchief or handkerchief, depending on how you like to say <laughs> <Sure>. it. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the final battles with our three Kryptonians and Superman, which was always great. That was a blast. That was a lot of fun. And kind of being surprised about how they ended it. Because, you know, when you have three equals, how the hell is he going to win the day? And being at that point, maybe eight, um, that was certainly a surprise and enjoyed that. So that's my earliest memories of Superman, too. Yeah, man. Love this movie as a kid. And I'm glad you talked about your earliest memories of Superman 1 because, unfortunately, we're not covering it on this podcast. Although, maybe someone out there will invite us to guest host on their pod so we can cover it. Yeah, so many memories attached to that film as well. Can't wait to get into this one. Superman! So what are your initial thoughts of Superman 2 watching it again? Well, you said it in the intro, and I'm glad you did. Let's first let our listeners know that we watched the theatrical cut from 1980, not the Richard Donner cut, which was released in 2006. And this film is directed by Richard Lester and technically Richard Donner, but we'll touch on that later. Richard Lester is known for using the Beatles. Yeah, the band. In a couple of his films that he directed, namely A Hard Day's Night from 1964 and the film Help! Exclamation point in 1965. He also directed A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1966, The Three Musketeers in 1973, The Four Musketeers in 74. He does this, Superman 2 in 1980 and Superman 3 in 1983. You may know this. The average moviegoer might not know this. This movie was written by Mario Puzo. Yeah, that Mario Puzo. The same Mario Puzo that wrote the Godfather novel upon which the Godfather film is based. And he also did write the screenplay for Superman 1. I have not watched this sequel in a number of years. 
But as soon as we hear the film's score, the music starts during the very cold open, and I'm not talking about the main Superman theme, just the music that begins at the very opening of this film, I have to say I knew immediately it was not John Williams. It's his composed score from the first film, but it's not his orchestration. It's not awful by any means. It's still that great music, but it's just not quite as robust. Sorry, Ken Thorne, who was the composer of this soundtrack. It's one of those things, and I'm sure you may feel the same way, Bill Bant. We are quite familiar with the original Superman soundtrack, as we are with all of John Williams' scores. I know it by heart, and I know John Williams when I hear him. And when I started hearing this music, I was like, oh, nope, not John Williams. I always loved the intro to this film. Just kind of wondering again, who are these bad guys? Oh, Zod, Ursa, and Nan. And what was it that they did exactly that was so awful as to be sentenced to the Phantom Zone for eternity? Well, the Superman theme does kick in, and man, it always gives me chills. It just does. Probably more than any other John Williams theme song. It's just how it builds. To me, when the song begins, it's as if Superman hasn't quite arrived yet, but he's on his way. And you immediately know everything is going to be all right. And then... The horns and the theme kick in, and Superman appears in heroic fashion. It's just one of the all-time great theme songs, and gets me every time. I always liked the setup for this story. It has the action, the love story. It has formidable villains. It's a great concept. And you know what, Bill Bant? Part of the fun in the fiction of a lot of superhero movies is the fact that the general public in the fiction doesn't know who the superhero is, right? They have their... Uh, hidden identity that, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, etc. And we know that the superhero must conceal his identity for a lot of different reasons, mainly safety for himself and those close to him or her. But I was thinking about how it's actually fun for the audience to buy into that as well, because I, as an audience member, love the mystery of it. I think there's a certain allure to it for me, which I realized, and it's fun. It gives the character a certain freedom And I put myself in that superhero's shoes, thinking about how cool it would be to run around crusading as a masked vigilante, fighting for justice, no one knowing who I really was. So, you know, spoiler alert again for, you know, just the major plot point in this film, Superman reveals his identity to Lois Lane. We see it coming as Lois is starting to put it together anyway. Now, one wants Kal-El or Clark to be happy in love, of course, and Lois is certainly not the public at large. She's his kind of partner. And just like in the Spider-Man films, we want Peter to be with Mary Jane. We want it to work. But once the person finds out who that superhero is, yes, it's cool to see their reaction at first, but then it kind of lets the wind out of the sails for me a bit. It's not as fun anymore. So thus, it makes sense that even when someone finds out who the superhero is, some device is employed in order to make the person forget soon thereafter. It was done with Super, uh, I should say it was done with Spider-Man recently. And again, Superman does it in this film, spoiler alert, by kissing Lois Lane and all of a sudden she can't remember anything. We just got to always keep the public and even the people close to the superhero kind of in the dark It just to retain and maintain that mystery. I have to just comment, you know, again, on the casting of Christopher Reeve. Watching this film, and I'll touch on it, he's the best part of this sequel to me. I firmly believe, and this is just my opinion, that he is the best casting of a superhero in a film ever. That's my take. 
always has been. And here's my main initial thought about watching this movie as an adult, or my, I should say my overall or overreaching thoughts as what, for watching this movie as an adult. This film still has a lot to like, but if I'm being completely honest, this viewing left me a bit deflated. I had forgotten or didn't realize that this movie is a little silly. It has a goofiness that stung me a bit. I'm all for levity and lightheartedness. This is a superhero movie based on a comic book that doesn't need to take itself too seriously. But the film is borderline slapsticky at times and has these comedic beats that are so obvious they feel like blunt instruments beating my suspension of disbelief over the head. It's simply not as tonally balanced as the original film. Richard Lester, as we'll see in the research, made a choice here, and it simply doesn't resonate fully with me as an adult. I can clearly see why I was thoroughly entertained as a child watching this, but today it's just not the same. Now, let me be clear, I'm not being critical about Christopher Reeve's performance. For me, I think he's the best part of this sequel, and although I may take issue with what he was given to do in this movie, he himself is still great to watch. To watch him go from the innocence that the clumsy and accident-prone Clark Kent, which he still manages to perform with some subtlety, if that even makes any sense, to watching him turn into Superman and make that transition on a dime is quite impressive. Reeve was the real deal as an actor, and he makes this film watchable. I'll admit, I was still in it. I was still in it on this revisit for the first 55 minutes or so. I did like Hackman in this as Lex Luthor, but there's not much subtlety with his character and he's playing the third fiddle in this. He's not in it enough for me. I feel like Terrence Stamp was a genius casting move as General Zod, and weirdly enough, I misremembered that he had more to do in this film than he actually does. But still, Terrence Stamp's presence is great. His performance is solid, super solid. But seeing his eye-rolling at Ursa's bravado or Nan's oafishness was not great. That's not an actor's choice. That's a directorial choice. Even watching the oafish or super, like, seven-foot-tall non's goofiness and grunts and growls and high-pitched moaning was really tough for me. Watching him perform in those platform boots was really tough. Beyond that, it's just as if there were way too many little moments that were played for laughs, which made it silly. I'll give it, you know, one general example. That final action sequence, which is pretty awesome in its scope, still is symbolic about how I feel about this movie upon revisiting it. The first half has its merits, and then the second half of the of that final like big action sequence in Metropolis gets a bit ridiculous and plays for laughs, and it feels inappropriate. It's not inappropriate as in it's distasteful. It's just that these moments don't belong, meaning when Superman's he's facing off against the triumvirate of the criminal Kryptonians, and... It's all really serious, and but then once they start blowing their wind and blowing the entire crowd back, we see like a couple's wigs get blown off. There's a guy in a payphone that blows over, and he hangs on to the phone. And he's still talking into the phone. There's a guy in roller skates being blown backwards, making goofy noises. They double down on that guy, and I'm just like, I was taking this seriously for a second, and I felt the stakes were high, and people's lives were in danger, and now hijinks ensue, and I'm not buying it. Let me say this. There are certain allowances that must be made for any comic book adaptation. We know this is a fantastical story on a certain level, and that forgives a lot. But that doesn't mean it has to be goofy. So I was initially jarred and shaken by my first revisit because I had such a nostalgic attachment to this movie. Then I settled into it a bit while watching it again to take notes. So I relaxed a little bit. There's definitely fun to be had still. 
I'm just not sure this film holds up. Those are my initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? Wow, some heavy stuff there, just so you know, Jason. I think we're kind of on the same page because I remember thinking Mm. for the longest time that Superman 2 is not only my favorite of the Christopher Reeve movies, but the best of the Superman movies. Watching it this time, and maybe because I know all the the behind-the-scenes turmoil that happened, I'm wondering if it's affecting my judgment on this movie. The flow is not the best. I agree with you. It tries to be too silly. The exposition dumps are awful and too on the nose. The only thing that can break the Phantom Zone is a nuclear blast. Like We saw that happen. Why, why do you need to tell us this? Why is Gene Hackman in this movie? He's a great Lex Luthor, but we didn't need him. Bring him back in the third movie. You already have three really good villains. Our three villains come to Earth, and they come to this super small town in the middle of nowhere. And then the military comes out of nowhere with guns blasting. Just lots of odd stuff. Didn't make sense. The best parts of this movie... To me, Terrence Stamp as General Zod, and of course, Christopher Reeve when he is Superman. Can't get enough of those two. I wish they had more interaction. It takes too long for them to finally meet up. Should maybe had them fight somewhere in the beginning. Superman gets his butt kicked because he's outnumbered, retreats to the Fortress of Solitude to lick his wounds, and then comes back with a new game plan to lure them to the Fortress and then take away their powers. I know it takes away from the love story. I'm okay with that. This should be the aliens to alien. The Empire Strikes Back to Star Wars. Ramp up the action when you have villains that can go toe-to-toe with our hero. That's my initial thoughts of Superman 2. Short and sweet and succinct, and I appreciate every word of it. Well said, well laid out. Couldn't agree more. Can't say it better. Yeah, it's just kind of surprising. I don't know if it's because of just how we look at superhero movies now. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff that was really jarring to me while I was watching it. And I think, yeah, it's totally different as a kid because you're just so excited to see Superman. It was Superman versus three bad Kryptonians and Lex Luthor was helping them and they were fighting and that's all cool. But then you get older and you watch all this other stuff and all this goofiness, which you chuckle at as a kid. But now you're kind of, eh, do we really need that? Yeah, some of it's actually cringe worthy and it's a choice. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. This is my opinion. And if I'm going to, let's say, I don't know if this is a one-to-one comparison, but if you look at the Tim Burton Batman films, and then when Joel Schumacher takes over, Joel Schumacher makes a choice. Just as Tim Burton made a choice. He made it, you know, went with a certain direction, but then Joel Schumacher goes very comic book and very stylized with the Batman franchise. And here... Richard Lester made a choice and wanted to go more comic booky, And it's just a choice. And it's my opinion. It's that it doesn't work. And that's on film in this scope, in this medium. It's a taste thing. So, and it is like you said, Bill, it's an adult thing to now looking at it with a more analytical mind and looking at story and pacing. I also would agree with that criticism this should have had a quicker pace and let's get to the action because as I said, and I think you agree is that the villains are here. They had all the pieces. The pieces are all here. Yes. Great idea. Great concept. Execution was really strange for me. Yeah. I almost feel like Richard Lester was like, Oh, it's based on a comic book. So it must be funny. I never 
thought of Superman comics being funny just because mm-hmm. it has the word comic and it doesn't mean it's supposed to be hysterical. Now, I'm like you. I didn't read superhero comics. I was more in the Archie, Richie Rich vein. But the few issues that I have read, I don't feel like there was ever a silliness to Superman. So I don't know why that was brought into the film. Like I get the whole Clark persona because he wants to really hide the fact that he's Superman. So he has to play the opposite of who he is. And that's fine. But just everything else that's thrown in and some of it's just like super ridiculous. Like the opening scene when we see Clark crossing the street to meet up with Lois and then the taxi hits him and it's dented in. Okay, haha, that's funny. But everyone just takes that like, oh, oh, there's someone else that got hit by a car and the car got busted again. Like, how did that guy survive getting hit by a car? Yeah. Why aren't the bystanders calling out what just happened? Why is the guy driving the cab not even more upset? Right. His cab is trashed. It's totaled. It's just so over the top. That's where it dings my suspension of disbelief. It takes you out. It takes you out of the... That could work in a comic book if drawn a certain way. But for film, you have to have a little more nuance Like the one comedic moment from the first one that I always remember is, I think it's when the helicopter is hanging off the side of the uh, Daily Planet and Christopher Mm -hmm. Reeve goes to try to change in the Superman and he comes up to the phone. And that's that's a staple of Superman that he would change in the phone booth and then take off. And he goes to the one booth, but it's the the newer version of a of a phone booth where it's not a complete walk in one. And it was yeah, it's fr- a payphone with just yeah half the covering. It's not a full phone. Booth. And, that, and that's funny because it's a sign of the times. And then he finally finds the I think the revolving doorway, and then changes there and, and mm. takes off. There's some subtlety and cleverness in the moment. exactly. And that here it just hits you over the head like all right, this is supposed to be you're supposed to laugh right now. Boom, and it just mm-hmm. did that throughout the whole movie. And I was just no, don't need that. Right. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes or moments from Superman 2? All right, let's get into it, Bill Band. I'm calling this one Lois Finds Out. So at this point, Lois and Clark have been sent on assignment as reporters to Niagara Falls to uncover a a honeymooner's racket or a scam of some sort at the Honeymoon Haven Hotel. Thus, they are to pose as newlyweds, which is inherently... Awkward for Clark because he's infatuated with Lois. We understand that, but she only likes him as a friend and co-journalist at the Daily Planet. Now, when Lois and Clark are out seeing the sights, Lois has Clark take off his glasses for a moment. She gets a glimpse of his full face and has a moment of recognition. But Clark quickly puts his glasses back on and Lois decides to have some hot dogs, which Clark goes to fetch. When suddenly a boy who was goofing around on the railing overlooking the falls goes over the railing Falling into the falls, all of a sudden, Superman shows up to save the boy and save the day. But when Superman leaves, Lois looks for Clark and realizes he seems to always disappear when Superman shows up. Hmm. Cut to Lois putting two and two together, and she decides to prove that Clark Kent is actually Superman and tells him as much. And she proceeds to throw herself over a railing and into the rapids flowing from the falls, hoping that Clark will turn into Superman immediately and save her. Lois is quickly pulled down the rapids 
but Clark refuses to transition into Superman and runs down alongside the river and instead shoots his laser beams from his eyes in order to sever a tree limb, which falls into the river, and Lois is able to grab hold of it and manages to make her way to the edge. She's embarrassed to admit that she was wrong to think Clark Kent was actually Superman. Now cut to back at their newlywed suite. Clark is in dry clothes, and Lois is now in a robe sitting by the fireplace centerpiece, and she feels like an idiot, having thrown herself into the river and feeling somewhat abandoned by Superman. He didn't come save her. She then seems to have misplaced her comb and asks Clark to instead pass her a brush from the vanity, and he obliges. And as he goes to pass her the brush, he trips over the polyester bearskin rug, and it inadvertently puts his hand into the fire. Lois immediately goes to his aid and asks to see his hand. When he finally shows her his hand, she can see he is uninjured and thus confirms he is Superman. You are Superman. And Clark is like, no, Lois, don't be silly. He stops mid-sentence. And I like this moment because Clark knows he's been made. He's been made. He's Superman. And he's frustrated at the moment. He kind of clenches his fist and kind of air punches downward and... He's made a mistake, and he steps away for a moment, and then he finally removes his glasses and relaxes into the role of Superman. She says, I'm sorry. She almost feels bad, like she's (laughs) exposed him, and he says, no, you you don't have anything to be sorry about. I don't know why I did that. She says, maybe you wanted to, and he says, I don't think I did. (laughs) Maybe you wanted to with your mind, but uh, maybe you didn't want to with your mind, but maybe you wanted to with your heart. And I like this line because he just looks at her and says, we better talk. And she says, I'm in love with you. And he goes, well, then we really better talk. We can't talk here. Lois, now that you know it, I think you should know it all. She says, maybe I should change first. And she says, maybe you should too, because he's about to fly her off to the Fortress of Solitude. So I like this scene a lot. It's a, a pivotal moment in the film. I love when Christopher Reeve makes this transition as an actor. It kind of proves that at least I've kind of bought into his Clark Kent persona because he does it for a while in this movie and as clumsy and kind of bumbling as he is as Clark Kent, I think he does it pretty well when he has his back turned to Lois and then turns and she says, I'm sorry. He completely relaxed. He transforms and it's he's just taken his glasses off but it's in the tone and pitch of his voice he relaxes his shoulders he does something that's very subtle and when he says no you don't have anything to be sorry about it's like wow what just happened that is superman it's really like he's a different person it's such a testament to christopher reeve man i miss that guy it almost makes me want to cry i love christopher reeve He's a wonderful actor. You don't realize how good he is until you watch like this moment in particular. And he just goes from that innocent type of fool to a man of earnestness and experience and intelligence in a split second. It's apparent in his handling of the situation not to overwhelm Lois or take advantage of the situation in any way because he knows she's head over heels for him. And instead he says, "We, we better talk. He's being responsible in the moment. And so much of it is in his eyes There's just a pure goodness that he exudes as an actor that is just unrivaled. He's earnest, honest. He has humility. He's compassionate and understanding. And of course, he portrays this immense strength as the man of steel all at the same time. Not an easy thing to do. 
So that's why I like the scene and I really appreciate Christopher Reeve in this moment. And he actually does. I think he has really nice chemistry with Margot Kidder in the scene, too. Yeah, good call. And I never thought about the chemistry between the two of them, but it, it does work. And I think that's why, especially these first two movies were so popular, because it's very believable that Clark has a thing for Lois and Margot Kidder's performance really plays into that. And I think that really works. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think of the Niagara Fall sequence. I think my favorite part is Lois jumps into the rapids expecting Clark to turn into Superman in front of her, and he doesn't, and he figures out a way to save Lois without giving away his identity. You're like, oh, good, he's off the hook. And then we go back to the hotel, and whoops, the hand goes in the fire. Yeah, it's a good moment. I think I like the fact that you are stressing Reeves acting in this scene, and that's what makes it work. I think we're all excited yet bummed that he's been exposed. Yeah, it is really a testament to Reeves acting, which really makes that scene work. So yeah, good call on that one, Jason. All right, thanks. What do you have for a favorite scene or moment? For my first one, it's actually just a moment. It's with our three villains, and we find out in the very beginning of the movie Um, It takes place in Paris. There's these terrorists that have taken over the Eiffel Tower and they have a hydrogen bomb and Superman comes in, saves the day, throws the bomb out into space. And of course, the bomb blows up near the Phantom Zone, freeing our Kryptonians. And then they pretty quickly find out that they now have these powers because of the yellow sun and they've made their way to Earth. And when they're at Earth, they come to this tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Were you going to say Poda? I was going to, but I was like... (laughs) I love that word. (laughs) I I almost felt like I was insulting the town, but I'm like, well, it's not a real town. But they come into the town and the military comes out of nowhere and they're shoot first, ask questions later. And there's just this one moment when we have our three Kryptonians and a helicopter comes in and starts trying to shoot rockets at them. And Ursa goes up to Zod and goes, look, they need machines to fly. And General Zod responds with, what's bravery? Be nice to them, my dear. Blow them a kiss. And that's when she uses her super wind and literally blows the helicopter back. And then we just have this great shot of, see, I I miss miniatures. Right. And it's this almost like a slow motion helicopter is on its side and it comes into frame and it's basically a barn. And the helicopter hits the barn and we have our miniature explosion and just thought it was a a neat little moment between Zod and Ursa because they just know at this moment, like these people, they're just no match for us. And they're funny little machines that they're flying around in. And even though they've just learned to have all these superpowers themselves, I think part of them is just astonished that why don't all these people have these powers? So I just like that moment. Outstanding. Great call. I love that you've brought up your fandom for miniatures when it comes to, well, effects and set building, etc. And obviously, you know, we're Star Wars kids and we're fans of that. But I wanted to give a shout out to a friend I haven't spoken to in some time. His name was Randy Hagee. He was a regular at the Black Cow Cafe. And he and his family were absolutely wonderful and very kind to me. And he Worked in Hollywood in miniatures. He built and created miniatures, and he would uh, have some on display. At times, I went to some of the exhibits where he had some of his miniatures on display, and they were absolutely wonderful. I am fascinated by it, and they really bring you in. And they're so meticulous, 
so detailed and so realistic. It's a real fascinating and wonderful skill set that I have a huge appreciation for being able to see his work up close. And I know the last I heard, at least, because it's been some time since I've spoken with him, that he has retired from doing that. But I mean, there were some big Hollywood people purchasing things that he had put on display in, on, in his exhibit. But it's just a real, real amazing talent. And I had appreciation for the miniatures used in this film as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you brought this up because this was my second favorite scene, actually. It has some issues in it, no question. But I found that it was cool to see this trio of Kryptonians with their newfound powers on display do their thing because, yeah, it, they, they show up in this small town outside Houston, Houston, and we see Ursa wailing on a guy in an arm wrestling match, basically throws him through a table. This like inside this little bar in this little town. And then things kick up a notch when Zod throws a local through the wall of the bar and into the street. That's pretty intense. There's this young boy with dirt on his face for some reason witnessing this whole thing go down. And his dad comes out of his house with a shotgun, but Zod uses this paralyzing freeze ray shooting out from his hand and it hits the dad and lifts him up in the air and then drops him on the ground. And like you said, Bill Band, eventually the army arrives and we get the giant Kryptonian Nan now having perfected his eye lasers. He shoots the tires out from the oncoming Jeep. And Zod, this is great. I love because in this scene, Zod is aware that a news crew is present and he's like mugging for the camera. He's fascinated with that kind of technology. And a soldier tries to use his flamethrower on Zod, but Zod simply redirects the flames by blowing them back at the building and setting that ablaze. A soldier fires a bazooka missile at Nan and he catches it. And then yes, the helicopter comes in. That's that great line you said from Ursa. And they're devastating. They're pretty intimidating in the scene. It's just broken up with some goofiness in moments and some dated effects, which unfortunately subtract from it a little bit. It doesn't destroy the scene, doesn't take it away from it, but there's some major explosions in it, uh, some real production value there. But this trio is pretty intimidating, devastating. And at the end of it, I love it because we get Terrence Stamp with his great delivery. His voice is great yes. as Zod. He uses, this, he uses a certain tone. And he looks into the camera and he says, I win. I always win. Is there no one on this planet to even challenge me? It's great. There's some fun to be had in that scene where it kind of really established these do-batters, as it was said in the What's on the Box segment. Yeah, and even in that scene itself, with the tone, which got a little distracting for me because talking about none and the Jeep comes and he shoots it twice with the heat ray, and he directs it up a ramp and it goes through this building and the Jeep flips over and you're thinking to yourself, well, those soldiers are dead. But of course we see the one soldier and he's just all wobbly like, oh boy, I maybe have a concussion. But then we go to the helicopter and obviously when that crashes into that barn, the people in there had to have perished. And the pilot's certainly dead. The whole thing explodes. So how do you have a car or the Jeep do the flip and they walk away from it. I was like, oh, it's like an episode of the A-Team. And then two shots later, a bunch of people die in a helicopter crash. Yeah. Which direction are you going? So I think that's why maybe I just picked a moment out of it. I totally agree. The tone is a little all over the place in this movie. And I have to say, Bill Bent, thank you for unintentionally correcting me. I keep saying laser beams shooting from either Superman or the Kryptonian's eyes. And they are, it is the heat ray. I don't know why. Keep saying laser because they look like laser beams. Yeah, they do, but they're they're the heat rays. And but it is cool to see 
them show off their powers because they're showing stuff right. we haven't seen Superman do. So it's interesting. All right. How are their powers match up with Superman's or are they going to use these on Superman and how is Superman going to deflect or stop them? Yeah, it is a good setup. Yeah, that's a great point because that at watching that as a kid was a real shock. That was a real surprise to see other characters with Superman's abilities. Yeah. Being able to do that, that was a big freaking deal. We're just used to it at this point. Yeah. we I mean, we know it's coming. So for me, for my next, I guess, favorite scene, and it has to be the first battle between Superman and the Kryptonians, which it's been building up for, I think we're almost at the 90-minute mark when this when they yeah. finally meet. And at this point, I mean, there's a lot going on. But let's just say Lex Luthor meets up with the Kryptonians. He tells them that, this Superman is the son of Jor-El and Zod is ecstatic because now he can get revenge on the person that imprisoned him and Ursa and Nan. And of course, Lex wants a little something to help out. And what he does is he takes the three Kryptonians to the Daily Planet because Lex knows that Lois and Superman are close. Not to what extent, but he just knows. And in the meantime, when the Kryptonians pretty much taken over the planet and the whole side story with the romance is Superman gave up his powers to be with Lois and he realizes he made a mistake. So he had to go back to the Fortress of Solitude and get his powers back. And he does. And now he finally comes back to Metropolis to face off against the Kryptonians. And it's really cool because the Kryptonians are at the Daily Planet. Superman comes flying in and he's literally flying outside the window and He's like, uh, do you want to step outside? And of course, they see that Superman's son, Jor-El, and the three of them go literally just launch themselves through the side of the building to go after Superman. And now you're all excited because it's like, oh man, it's three, three against one in the sky over Metropolis. Everybody's watching. They want to see what's going on. It's just fun because it's, it's really like a lot of back and forth because Superman knows, all right, there's three. There's one of me. How am I going to deal with this? So kind of flies off, not kind of chases them. Non catches him with a punch. He goes flying. Superman punches him back and he hits him so hard. He hits uh, some, some kind of like tower on top of a building. But of course, in doing that, the tower falls. So Superman's got to save the tower from falling onto the people. And of course, when that happens, Zod sees that what he actually cares for these people on Earth. What a moron and sees how he can use that to his advantage. And at one part, he picks up like a giant slab of a building and throws it at Superman. Superman's got to blow it up with his heat vision. But it gets to the point where there's no way Superman's going to be able to win because not only is he trying to fight the three Kryptonians, he's got to protect all the people that are in the street because every time they throw someone into someone, all the stuff keeps raining down on the people. And Zod's like, let's use this to our advantage. Let's attack the people. So we get to the point where they literally get on the street and there, oh yeah, there's a really cool scene, which I like now because I'm like, if they made this scene today, it would be totally different where Superman is standing on the street and Nod comes and literally jumps right on him and knocks him under underneath the street. And you don't see anything. You just hear them fighting and you hear Nod doing his grunting and stuff and you just hear punches, bum, 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 bum. And then the whole streets are shaking and everyone's falling down because of all the, the vibrations of just them fighting. And then all of a sudden you see Nan get sent right through, right back through, up through the street, through a building. But then what eventually happens is Nan and Ursa pick up a bus. And of course, 
Superman yells, no, not that, the people. And they use the bus and they throw it, throw it at Superman. And Superman tries to stop it. And it rams him into a wall in a truck. And at that point, Superman's like, you know what? There's no way I can do this here in front of all these people and flies off. And of course, everybody thinks he quits and Kryptonians think he's a chicken, but he's actually doing the right thing because I don't know why none of these people are leaving the streets. They're all just standing out there watching what's going on. They're putting themselves in danger. It's not helping Superman out, but it's it's a fun fight. There's a lot of stuff that happens. Some major advertising from Coca-Cola and Marlboro. Uh, one of the Kryptonians right. gets thrown into the Coca-Cola sign. Superman gets thrown through the Marlboro truck. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pretty blatant. But just watching them battle is just so much fun. I agree. Overall, that entire sequence is fun. It's huge on a production level. I mean, whether it be miniatures or extras, there is a ton going on. And Bill Band, thank God you tackled this scene and I didn't have to because I considered putting this in my favorite scenes. But I am a little bit of two minds about it because I felt the first half of the scene was great with all the action. We see a lot of the the powers being used, the heat rays, then Superman using his cooling ability to to prevent that one truck, truck's like yeah. gas tank from exploding. And we get a lot of just a lot of back and forth, a lot of cool fighting. And but then yeah, that second and I do love the moment when we know that basically Superman has been crushed against the wall by the bus full of people that Ursa non threw at him. And so he's out of the fight for the moment. But then we see the citizens rally on behalf of Superman. They're like they're not, we're not going to let these guys do this. Let's go get them. And they kind of team up. You see the crowd form a mob and approach the Kryptonians. It's a cool moment. I, I actually really like that moment. It's then when we see the three Kryptonians, though, and we get a lot of projection screen stuff in this movie. <laughs> Got to sit, you know, they're standing in front of this projected screen of the city street and the behind them, and they start blowing their super wind and blowing the entire crowd back. There's some gags in there that don't quite work because up right. to that point, the whole scene is so intense. It's really intense and literally explosive. And then we get some weird gags when the people start getting blown back after they try to charge the Kryptonians. And there's some goofiness in there that I didn't care for. But overall, great. And here's the thing about it is that I can't help now, of course, compare this battle between Superman and Zod and, of course, the other two Kryptonians. But between this scene and the battle between Superman and General Zod in Man of Steel, the Zack Snyder version where that particular film received a lot of criticism from myself and many others because of the amount of collateral damage and death caused by that Superman-Zod battle at the end of Man of Steel. And here it's interesting to look back upon this film and watch and going, oh my God, yeah, there's a lot of collateral damage in this film as well. They certainly did. But the fact that Superman really makes it a point, as you well laid out here, Bill Bant, to go down to street level and try to protect the people and then makes a conscious choice to leave, to draw the Kryptonians away from causing more damage and potential death. It's a major difference between the two. Right. So I just wanted to point that out. And I'm not here to rip on Man of Steel for any reasons. You know, but just saying there's you can compare these two specific sequences because it is Superman versus Sod. Mm-hmm. So um Thanks for, for breaking that down so I didn't have to. A lot going yeah, on in that. a lot. But it's huge, man. That's a huge scene. I mean, it's a long wait for it. 
I do think it's worth it. Yeah. All right. So getting to my final favorite scene, I am calling this Clark Kent returns to the diner. Oh, I had that too. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be. Yep. Because I needed this. I wanted it. I had to have it as a kid. You got to see Superman get his revenge. A little bit of, a little bit of revenge. Got to give Rocky his comeuppance. So we know at this point, and we've alluded to this scene that happened previous in this film where Superman has been depowered because he's given up his abilities in order to be fully mortal human so he can be with Lois Lane and they end up going to a diner and they go inside and well there's this rude gentleman he's a big dude who comes in after driving his truck and he's all rough and gruff and wearing his red flannel and his jeans and he sits down in Clark Kent's seat Clark comes out although he's technically I guess Kal-El at this point he's revealed himself to Lois and uh, asks the gentleman to get out of the seat, which he doesn't. And long story short, Clark gets his ass kicked right in front of Lois. It's really embarrassing, and he feels as though he's not the man that she fell in love with because he knows she fell in love with Superman, but Superman is no longer there. And then to make matters worse, Clark finds out that General Zod is on Earth with his fellow Kryptonians about to take over the world, then Clark has to go back to the Fortress of Solitude and somehow regain his powers. Now, cut to the very end of the movie where Superman returns to the diner to revisit Rocky the bully. And we know, of course, that Superman is fully powered and he walks into the diner as Clark Kent, dressed as Clark Kent, with his glasses on. And it's great because he sees Rocky at the end of the diner counter being a dick to the waitress and eating his food as he's grubbing away. And Clark slash uh, Superman says, uh, that's funny. I've never seen garbage eat garbage before. <laughs> Such a cheesy yeah. line, but I love it. I freaking love it. And he goes to him, excuse me, sir. I think you're sitting in my favorite seat, which is a callback to the previous scene. Rocky attempts to punch Superman in the stomach, which ends up breaking his own hand. And Superman just spins him around on the stool, the counter stool, at the speed so fast that it makes the stool spin upwards and makes Rocky extremely dizzy. Superman grabs Rocky, puts him up on the counter, and says, this order is to go, and pushes him so hard he slides all the way down the counter and goes flying off the counter, crashing into a pinball machine. And of course, you get the cheesy moments where the pinball machine lights up, says tilt, tilt, tilt. Superman hands the guy behind the counter a lot of cash for the damages and says, you know, while he's making that great, that gesture that he's been lifting weights, he says, oh, yeah, I've been working out. I love that line. I always loved that line as a kid. It's just that final period on it. Oh, I've been working out because it just was such a terrible moment to see Clark Kent get his butt kicked because he's no longer Superman and you just feel terrible for the guy and, you know, in front of his girl, too. And ah. But to see him come back at the end and really manhandle Rocky was great. Yeah. Um, like I said, I had that also as one of my favorite scenes, which is interesting because watching the first half of that again, I was thinking to myself, Clark, you're totally bringing this on yourself. Because right away, he comes out of the bathroom and sees Rocky sitting in his chair and says, excuse me, this is my chair. Yeah. Rocky insults him by saying, caught him four eyes. And right away... Instead of trying to smooth out the situation, 
he's asking Rocky to take it outside. Like, whoa, slow down, man. <laughs> and then Rocky hits him the first, well, cheap shots him, unfortunately, and yeah. he goes through the window. Mm, and yeah. that's when he sees his blood for the first time. And instead of just letting it go, all right, you lost. He gets back up and wants to fight him some more. I'm like, you already saw what happened the first time. Why are you going back for seconds? That's when he really takes a beating. Yeah. Just take Lois and move to another table. You've been a human for maybe 24 hours. Totally. It's a little big for his britches there. He's got a little uh, mean streak at him coming back to the scene of the crime and, <laughs> yeah. and taking Rocky out. I was like, damn. Right. It's not quite in line with Superman's typical way of being or his values, I suppose, mm-hmm. or his uh, principles, I should say. But he's not above making things a little more even. Right. I mean, he could have broke every bone in the guy's body, but true. he just more embarrassed him. And yeah, he's going to have to go to the ER and get his hand checked. But outside of that, it should be all right. I have to say it's tough again. Yeah. In that first scene when he gets his ass kicked by Rocky and he sees his own oh, blood yeah. for the first time, that moment of recognition hits home. It's a nice little acting moment by Christopher Reeve. He's like, my blood. Yeah, he's scared. He's probably yeah, never really felt not. that feeling either. I, I'm just going to call out one other moment that I really liked upon this revisit is when Superman goes into the crystal encasing to be depowered. And there's some interesting edits because he's seeing images of himself as Clark and Superman, and he's now becoming mortal and there's some like explosions and there's some interesting visuals, but it's the last visual, which is the moment oh, I'm calling yeah, out. Oh, yeah, that is cool. It's kind of a strange, uh, I guess, like a crossfade. It's almost as if the mortal Clark Kent is being extracted from the body of Superman. And we see the image of Superman. It's like almost a transparent hologram of Superman with his head down and his hands against the glass as Clark Kent, the mortal human, is walking away or being, like I said, kind of being pulled out of Superman's body. It's a cool image because we see the separation there. Like he's literally leaving Superman behind and becoming mortal. It's a cool moment. And it gives him a nice shirt, nice pants. Didn't like the hair that much, but yeah, I was like, yeah. the rest of him looks good. Yeah. Right, good call on that. All right. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. Why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have heat ray holes. Yes, if it doesn't have any heat ray holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. I don't think I really have any Swiss cheese. I kind of left everything to complaints because, I mean, it is a superhero. It's kind of fantasy. Got to roll with it. It's true. There is definitely a huge go with it factor in this movie. But I had a hole, and maybe you can clear this up for me because it's just kind of a something that's just not explained to me, and I still don't understand if I miss something. So please clear it up for me if you can. We know that Clark, after he gets his butt kicked in the diner by Rocky, and he finds out that Zod and Ursa and Nan are now on Earth, and Zod is now the ruler of uh, the USA. Well, Clark must return to the Fortress of Solitude to regain his powers, to get his powers back. So Clark gets back somehow to the Arctic and the Fortress of Solitude, and everything's been destroyed. That's how he left it. That's what he wanted. And previously, when he gave his powers up, he had seen the vision of Lara by using one of the crystals. He saw that vision of Lara, his Kryptonian mother, whom told him 
that once he gave up his powers, it was irreversible. But here, once he makes it back to the Fortress of Solitude, and he realizes everything has been destroyed, and it's his doing, and there's no one there to help him, not his father, not his mother, he discovers the green glowing crystal, and he holds it in his, arm, his hands and looking down at it as if this is the answer to getting his powers back. But then we don't see how that happens, and supposedly he wasn't supposed to be able to get his powers back, so... Did the green crystal somehow magically enable him to get his powers back? What what happened there, Bill Bant? Okay. So if you remember in the first one, after his father mm-hmm. passes away, it's that green crystal that calls him. Right. And it's a crystal that he takes out to the Arctic and throws it into the... Throws it, yeah, which creates the Fortress of Solitude. So I think, in a way, that green crystal is almost like the essence of Krypton. And because it didn't get destroyed... Luckily, it wasn't with the rest of the crystals because he showed it to Lois and Lois just left it there on the ground. That's not very, no, not, no, not very respectful at all. (laughs) So there must have been something in that crystal that could give him back his power. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost like an EpiPen for Kryptonian power. (laughs) Yes, an EpiCrystal. Yes, we'll call it the EpiCrystal. Okay. Well, I had a real problem with that. I thought that was a hole because. Lara clearly told him once he lost his powers, he couldn't get them back. If he was going to make this choice, it was irreversible. But he finds the glowing green crystal, and then the next time we see him, he's got all of his powers back. He's flying back to Metropolis mm-hmm. as Superman. So it was like, we don't get to see him. He doesn't go back in the case and somehow reversed the power. Like I mean, we see how that works at the end, but that doesn't apply to how he got his powers back. So... I was confused by that. What what are some of your complaints then? All right. So my first complaint is the balloon escape. So we start off with Lex Luthor in prison (laughs) with Otis and they're trying to escape from the prison. And Miss Tessmacher, who we saw from the first movie, shows up in a hot air balloon and Lex Luthor is able to climb on into the balloon. And then we have Otis trying to climb in the balloon, but he's too heavy. It's literally pulling the balloon down and Lex pretty much cuts the ladder and leaves Otis there by himself. And that's the last time we see Ned Beatty in the rest of the movie. So now they're in the balloon and for some reason, Lex seems to be able to steer it to go to the Fortress of Solitude. Like you cannot steer balloons. It's like, all right, you escape in the balloon, wherever the balloon goes, and then you go the rest of the way. But it almost makes it seem like the balloon's going to take them from wherever they are in prison all the way to the Fortress of Solitude, or pretty close, I guess at least two days away, because that's when, or I'm assuming two days away, because Miss Tessmacher at some point says she needs to go to the bathroom and she hasn't gone in two days. Who knows where the balloon's going to take you? Because it took you totally in a different direction. I know they need to go north, but he literally like, Let's keep going north. Like, that's the balloon's decision. That's not your decision. Whichever the way the wind blows, yeah. right? It's like when you go up in those things, it's already predetermined where you're going to go based on the wind factors of that day and all that stuff. You can't just go, Yeah, I'm going to get point. in the balloon and go south. No. If the winds are going north, that's where you're going or east or wherever. Bill Bant, I had a lot of issues with the travel in oh, this yeah. movie. And speaking of that, I'll just go to my complaint, which has to do with this specifically. But we learn while in prison that Luther explains this to Otis. Good to see Ned Beatty, at least for a minute in this. Mm-hmm. 
Lex Luthor explains that he's got a black box that tracks alpha waves, which will lead him to Superman's secret in the north. What? What? So somehow Lex Luthor devised some sort of black box that tracks alpha waves. What are alpha waves and how would he know that the Fortress of Solitude or Superman or any Kryptonian gives off alpha waves? Was that in the mythology of the first film, Bill Bant? Did I miss something? That's news to me. And when I Wikipedia'd alpha waves, it turns out that alpha waves are a type of brainwave. So I, I, I was just confused by that. So he's built this special radar box. So now, yeah, getting in the balloon, they get there and then... Now, they did have a snowmobile somewhere. Yes. Apparently, right? Maybe they rented it. Yeah, sure, sure. I do love the travel because I had an issue with uh, when Clark Kent is just Clark Kent. He's a mortal human walking back from the diner all the way to the Arctic in the Fortress of Solitude. He would have frozen to death. No problem. No worries there. When we have the Kryptonians flying uh, Lex Luthor and Lois Lane to the Fortress of Solitude at the end of the movie, it's just... Look, we do. We know that's part of it. I got. I gotta forgive that because I. I know Superman's flying with Lois Lane in the first one and stuff, and they're at. I don't know how high are they at? Thousands of feet in the air. We know it's. It's pretty cold up there, but it just seems like when they're flying Lex Luthor and Lois Lane to the Fortress of Solitude at the end, I'm like, oh my god, they've got to be freezing. Yes. But yeah, it was just like the travel, and you think about travel time. It's just. It's a bit much. It's a bit ridiculous. It is what it is. So. Alpha waves just really cracked me up. Yeah. Uh, here's I've got some questions regarding the Eiffel Tower sequence. Okay. The terrorists and their hydrogen bomb. We see that Lois managed to, manages to skirt the uh, French policeman. She distracts him with her little book of... Her dictionary. Yeah. And she runs off to the Eiffel Tower elevator. Now, did that policeman not alert his chief that... Lois had gotten through the police barricade that a citizen was inserting herself into this terrorist hostage situation because the cops after this do not seem to have a clue that she's even there. Why did the terrorists let the hostage go? They let the hostages go. thus giving up their leverage completely. Don't understand why they did that. But then the French police and their SWAT guys, they blow the elevator cables, which just releases the elevator and lets it fly down the shaft knowing that the bomb is on it because they want to get the bomb away from the terrorists. We understand that. And they think that the bomb hasn't been primed yet. They keep using the word primed. Yet they couldn't possibly know that for sure. They're looking through their binoculars and like, oh, no, we saw it. We we saw they didn't prime it yet. But in fact, the hostages had primed the bomb, so it's set to blow up. It just seems like there's a lot of irresponsibility here and just... It's like, you know, kind of how the FBI is portrayed in American films. Right. Just like like idiots, like French police don't come off great in this. I'm just going, what what's going on in this? Why, again, did the terrorists let the hostages go? I'm not, it was a little goofy. This, I again, I know I'm contradicting myself here because I'm saying I'm complaining about it, but then I'm also letting it go a little bit because this I could see happening like in a comic book where it's just things happen. Things just happen. Right. And you just have to keep the story moving. But of all, yeah, all the goofy things that were happening, I did not think about the police officer then alerting the authorities that someone has made their way into the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so we got to be cautious. We got to find where this person is and keep an right. eye on her. 
Yeah, before you take any action against the terrorists, there may be an innocent and there may be a civilian. Right. Like, I mean, well, she's a journalist, but still there's a. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when she was making her way up the stairways, I was like, hell no, I'd be dead trying to make my way up there. Yeah. Um, The scene when Lois throws herself into the, the rapids to hopefully bring Clark out of his Superman shell and she's flowing down the rapids, screaming her head off. And Clark is chasing her. And all we see is these couples. They're just holding hands and just strolling along. I'm like, wouldn't curiosity. I thought about that. Yeah. At the end, when she finally makes her way to shore and he jumps over the railing and there's a couple right there and they just keep walking. Like, Wouldn't you be curious to see someone jump over like that? Wouldn't know what they're doing. And then all of a sudden you would see, oh, my God, there's a woman in there. No, let's just keep holding hands and walking along. I guess, I guess love is blind because they don't see anything that's going on there. It's just like, come on. Every, every, there'd be a whole crowd following Clark along the boardwalk or the walkway to see what's going to yeah. happen to Lois. Oh, absolutely. 100%. If that happened today, nobody would help, but there would be a ton of people with their cell phones out taking video. Of well, yeah, they'd be following along with their video. So then he'd really be screwed yeah. trying to cut that branch off. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to use his heat no. ray. Caught on video. Oh, great stuff, Bill Bant. Totally agree with that. Back to, again, I'm just stuck, I guess, on this whole Luther going to the Fortress of Solitude (laughs) with, it was good to see Valerie Perrine here for a split second as Miss Desbacher. So, okay, he's following the alpha waves, supposedly, to the Fortress of Solitude. He makes it there with Miss Desbacher. And the whole idea here is to find out Superman's secret, as he says. But he doesn't find out anything about Superman. He happens to inadvertently use an education crystal, which gives us the vision of Lara, Superman's Kryptonian mother, to find out that the three Kryptonians have potentially escaped the Phantom Zone and landed on Earth, which then Lex Luthor goes, ah, that explains the three alpha waves I've been receiving. Right. <laughs> what? So what? did he even need to go to the Fortress of Solitude to find that out? Because he doesn't find out anything about Superman or his secret. He just happens to inadvertently find out about the Kryptonians that have landed on Earth and that he can use that to his advantage. But he didn't need to go to the Fortress of Solitude to discover that. So I was just like, wow, this whole plot point was unnecessary. Lex Luthor is unnecessary. You're right. You stated that from the beginning. We both love Gene Hackman, but you could have done the movie without him. It would have made a difference. Any more complaints? From oh, yeah, you? I got a bunch. All right, let's go. All right, so our Kryptonians uh, land on Earth, and there's a scene when they're walking along this dirt path, and Ursa sees the snake, and she picks it up, and then the snake goes to bite her. She's got superpowers. <laughs> it's, it's kryptonite and snakes. That's their two weaknesses. Yes, Bill Bant, that is in the lore. You didn't know? I missed that one. That's in Action Comics issue number 271. Oh, okay. It's a good call. I didn't even think about that, of course. Her skin should be impervious to everything. Yeah. Like, it can deflect bullets, but it can't deflect a snake bite. <laughs> All right, next up. Uh, so I guess we're not worried about the astronauts or the cosmonauts on the moon. What happened to them? We know they, they died. <laughs> they got punted off the moon. They're floating. They're fine. They're out. But you think that would kind of be a news story outside of Kryptonians. It's like, oh, we lost communication. Oh, well. You're saying there there may be a reaction to the fact that they lost three astronauts right on the moon 
yes, the three, two astronauts and a cosmonaut were killed mm-hmm. on the moon. That there would be some sort of no, nothing, nothing no. at all, no mention of it afterward. Ah, uh, it's great. Go keep going. All right. So the big fight scene at the end, the first fight scene in Metropolis, and we have Lois watching with one of her coworkers. And first, the coworkers excited that the Kryptonians have the same power as Superman. I'm like, wait, they're your enslavers right now. Why are you rooting for them? And then weird yeah. moment. And then the fact that Lois can see the whole fight from where she's standing from the Daily Planet. I mean, yeah. they're flying around the city. I'm pretty sure they would fly off out of your view a couple of points. So you'd have no idea what is going on. It's not all happening right in front of you, this fight. Right. I just found that strange. Like she can see everything that's going on. It's like, oh, maybe uh, when they knocked boots, she got some x-ray vision or something. I don't know. <laughs> that's good. Bill Bant, you don't know that? Yes, that was in the lore. That's in Action Comics issue number 273. Oh, okay. And they do call it knocking the boots. She has a pretty good view of the entire action scene can see every little detail from high up on her particular floor at the daily planet yeah it's a little loosey-goosey it's there's a lot of a lot of questions ah too many questions all right two more all right so the final battle at the fortress of solitude so we have the three kryptonians there and they are trying to flank superman and zod said you know like like let's destroy him and he and he shoots the whatever that beam is i'm not even sure what it is and he shoots it at superman and Superman blocks it with his hand. So then the other Kryptonian does it. It might have been Ursa next. And she shoots it at the exact same spot. Right. Why don't you go for his legs, go for his face, and then Nan does the same thing. I'm like, why are all three of you shooting at the... He only has two hands. I got a lot of problems with the finale at the Fortress. Right. There's a lot of issues And here. then he reverses it, and they all fall. And then Lois is able to kick Ursa off the ledge there. I'm like, no, she can't. She would have broke her foot yeah. trying to kick her. And Ursa just comes right back. I, I don't know what was up with Superman's disappearing act and his holograms. as w- And then the Kryptonians are able to do that yep. as well. And this is a, a fan complaint, oh, yes. as you can see in the, the uh, cellophane S. research. When he rips the S off of his chest and uses a cellophane version of it to wrap Non with it, which has almost no effect on no. Non. It's just like, why was that even, why did you even do that? But then it's just at the end, it's kind of a clever device or twist when we see Superman go into the glass case and we think that he's going to lose his powers once again, but he's reversed the mechanism and now the Kryptonians are actually depowered. So it's everything outside of the glass case that is depowered. So Trick is on the Kryptonians and he comes out. So that's kind of clever. But then... The way that the Kryptonians are dispatched is so quick and easy because he kneels before Zod, but then and when Zod reaches out his hand, Superman takes it and crushes his hand and then gets up and does he kick him or he goes flying? He throws him. He picks him up. That's right. Thank you. He yeah picks him up, throws him against a wall, and he goes sliding down into the ether somewhere Mm -hmm. below. And then what happens with Ursa? Doesn't Lois like elbow her or something she or punch her? her. Uh, wouldn't she goes yeah. off the ledge and she's dead all of a sudden? Yeah, she makes her little quip and then punches her. And Nan goes down like a bitch too, right? What? <laughs> yeah, he goes to the fly and when he jumps, right. he just realizes. Oh, he can't yep, fly. He just falls. Right, because he lost his powers mm-hmm. and he just falls. And it's like, oh, yeah, bad guys are, are dead. It was, it was very wily Coyote. 
I was almost oh my surprised God, we didn't so see silly. the eyes just stay up and then come down with the rest of them. So where's the anvil? Yeah, lots of problems with the finale at the fortress, as well as the fact that we will, and I'm stepping on a little trivia and research here, Gene Hackman was not present for part of this, or a lot of this, actually. And they used an impersonator, and they used a lot of ADR. Uh, someone did his voice in this, and it's apparent. You can see there's a you know an impersonator stunt double portraying Lex Luthor as he's like trying to get into the, you know, he's coming into the forest, he's sliding down a wall and you hear a, it's a voiceover and it's clearly not Gene Hackman's voice. It's just weird. It's weird. All right, let's move on. All right. Time for, Hey, it's an actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, Hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week? All right, Bill Bant. Well, this week we chose our guy, John Ratzenberger, yeah. as controller number one. Yeah. Now, if we go back to uh, 1978, he was also in Superman 1. And he played, as you guessed it, controller number one. So our guy, John Ratzenberger, actor. He's also done a little directing in his time. Well, in 1980, he did have the small role of Rebel Force Major Durlin in Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. He was also in Motel Hell, and he does go on to have roles in Outland in 1981. He was Chief Peck in Firefox and American Lieutenant in Gandhi. Those were both in 1982. He did plenty of episodic television as well as TV movies, but he is best known for his role as Cliff Clavin in 270 episodes of the all-time great sitcom Cheers, which was on television from 1982 to 1993. And of course, that show does live on in syndication. Now, he's gone on to continue to appear in TV shows and most recently in an episode of the acclaimed Ryan Johnson-created series Poker Face. But here's another thing that he is most well known for. Well, John Ratzenberger is the only person to voice a character in all of Pixar Animation's feature films. And I could go down the list, but you could do the research yourself. He's in all of them. And you might primarily know him as Ham in Toy Story, the Toy Story franchise. Uh, He was also P.T. Flea in A Bug's Life, The Abominable Snowman in Monsters, Inc., he was Mac in Cars. So yeah, you can go down the list. He was in every one. It's pretty awesome. Pretty good career as a voiceover artist. Here's some other fun trivia regarding John Ratzenberger. He attended and helped construct the stage at the Woodstock Festival way back in 1969. Here's another little fun fact. Along with George Went, Richard Belzer, and Paul Fusco, he is one of only four actors to play the same character in six different series. So he was Cliff Clavin in Cheers, St. Elsewhere, The Tortellis, Wings, The Simpsons, and Frasier. He appeared in all six series with George Went. Oh, wow. So, hey, it's that actor for this week is John Ratzenberger. Still working, still doing it. All right, let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Superman 2? And I think there's a pretty big one. Yeah, this is a big one. And I know you'll be able to add on to this if you should please, should please. Uh, But here's a brief synopsis. In 1977, 
It was decided by producers Alexander and Ilya Salkind, or Salkind, that they would film both Superman and its sequel simultaneously, with principal photography beginning in March 1977 and ending in October 1978. Tensions rose between original director Richard Donner and the producers in which a decision was made to stop filming the sequel, of which 75% had already been completed, and then go back to finish the first film. Following the release of Superman in December 1978, Donner was controversially fired as director and was replaced by Richard Lester. Several members of the cast and crew declined to return in the wake of Donner's firing. To be officially credited as the director, Lester reshot most of the film, in which principal photography resumed in September 1979 and ended in March 1980. This is what I have when it comes to this, because, I mean, this is really the big story about this movie. So, according to Richard Donner, he claims he was fired from Superman 2, because of the greed of the Salkins. I'll, I'll say Salkins, you say what you want. But they have a different story. So they say Donner made a demand that producer Pierre Spengler be fired for him to return. Spengler reportedly fought with Donner about going over budget and then going over schedule often on the set of Superman to the point where Donner felt he could not work with him anymore. So Spengler was one of the original people, along with the Salkins, who spearheaded the project in the first place. So they didn't feel they could let him go. So instead of meeting Donner's demand, they moved forward without him. So technically they didn't fire him. So that's from the, the Salkins side of it. So apparently then Richard Lester had to come in, who was already kind of a mediator, supposedly, in the movie to help out and had to reshoot a large volume of the film to gain sole director credit. Right. Instead of just trying to fill in the gaps that Donner had done. So, of course, there's portions of the movie, like if you watch the Donner's cut and you watch Lester, it's the same sequence, but they're just shot different just because Lester needed it in order to get the credit of being the director. But when they were finished, Lester and the Salkins both went to Donner at the end of filming and offered to give him co-directing credit, but Donner declined. Um, as for the actors, Gene Hackman, Ned Beatty, Valerie Perrine, and E.J. Marshall, who played the president, were the only actors who did not participate in the film's reshoot under Richard Lester. So everything you see with them is Donner stuff. There you go. Well, hopefully that clears a little bit of that up for our listeners don't know if you need it to be cleared up, but yeah, the fact that both Superman 1 and 2 were shot simultaneously, well, at least 75% of Superman 2 had been shot, and then they said, nope, going to go back and just make sure Superman 1 is done. We're going to fire Donner, and we're going to hire Lester, and then all that other stuff happens in between. They initially stopped shooting to promote the first movie, and then after that was done, they were to come back and finish, and the shit had hit the fan at that point, and then Donner was let go fire, negotiate, however you want to call it. But right. Donner started it, Lester finished. So that much we know is yeah. true. The rest of it of how it actually went down, it's a, he said, she said, and then there's the truth. Depends on what you read or who you talk to. Composer John Williams was originally slated to score Superman 2, in which he was given a screening with Ilya Salkind and Richard Lester. This is according to Wikipedia. When Salkind left the projection room, Williams and Lester fell into an argument. When Salkind returned, Williams told him that he could not get along with this man, being Lester. 
To take his place, Richard Lester's frequent composer, Ken Thorne, was selected to score the sequel. Now, in connection to this, this is now from IMDb, John Williams, of course, like we know, did not return as composer due to scheduling commitments with Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, which was released in 1980, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. However, Williams granted the Salkins permission to use his original themes and even recommended composer Ken Thorne, a personal friend of Williams, to compose the film's score. So once again, what's the truth and what's not? Who knows? I don't know. So the casting of Marlon Brando as Jor-El had been a major coup for Superman, the production. Because even though Brando was very expensive, he lent major star power to the production. The movie was a huge hit. But after the first film uh, hit the box office, uh, the Salkins saw an opportunity to carry on without him, something Brando didn't help by using them for more money after Superman was released. Rather than paying Brando his share of Superman's two profits, were he to appear in the film, the Salkins and Lester retooled the story so that Kal-El would receive messages not from his father, but from his mother, Laura. Actress Susan York was happy to return for the sequel, and the footage that Donner had shot of Brando was thus scrapped. So Brando was originally supposed to appear in the second one. The Salkins were like, no way, we're not paying you that money for it. So when Donner was gone, so was Brando. Yeah, there you go. All right, here's, here's my last one, and this is kind of funny. The film was banned in Sweden because it contained too much violence. Wow, okay. This will be my last tidbit because we touched on this earlier. Director Richard Lester was not sympathetic to the epic look that Richard Donner had given to Superman from 1978, saying that he didn't want to do the David Lean thing. Lester decided to scrap most of Oscar-winning cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth's footage and hired director Michael Winner's cinematographer Robert Painter to create a style that would evoke Superman's roots in comic books. Lester and cinematographer Painter and camera operator Freddie Cooper replaced Unsworth's gliding camera with horizontal panning and static framing to evoke comic books and comic strips with static frames crammed with people and objects. Similarly, the composition of shots the trio developed for Superman 2 had objects and people crammed into the frame. Move on to box office. So Superman 2 was released on June 19th, 1981 in the United States in 1,395 theaters. On an estimated budget of $54 million, it grossed $108.2 million domestically and $82.2 million internationally. It debuted number one at the box office just ahead of the Cannonball Run, which also debuted that week. It held the top spot for three more weeks and fell to number three in its fifth week of release behind Raiders of the Lost Ark and Stripes. Superman would stay in the top ten for another seven weeks. Superman 2 would be the third highest grossing movie in the U.S., in 1981, only behind Raiders of the Lost Ark and on Golden Pond. Superman 2 came out in 1980. That's because it was released overseas in 1980 and wasn't released here in the U.S. until 1981. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Superman 2 was unanimous. 
two thumbs up. Gene enjoyed the love story in the movie, along with Christopher Reeve's performance as both Clark and Superman. Roger thought the casting is what makes the movie work. They were able to keep the film grounded and not become ridiculous. Both agreed they liked it better than the original. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 83% and has an IMDb rating of 6.8. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Superman 2? In the cold open of this film, we are introduced to our three evil Kryptonians. What did Zod accomplish by cracking the red crystal at the very opening of the film? We have no idea. Okay. Didn't know if you'd seen some... The Richard Donner cut or if there was some missing footage or a deleted scene or something. I'll be honest. I've only seen the Donner cut once and I don't remember most of it. I was hoping to revisit it before we did this episode, but I just didn't have time. The three of them were just basically just trying to do a coup of the current yeah. government. But yeah, I don't know what significance that red crystal would have. Yeah. I mean, they are convicted of what seditious treason. Is that what yeah. the, the court concludes yeah so th- their goal is just to take over crypto mm-hmm. but but i have to say i, I do one. love the fact that when you watch the original movie and you see the three of them go into the phantom zone you, like you have no idea that they would bring them back for the second i thought that was pretty smart oh yeah i thought that was nice kind Very of cool, cool that they did that love it i've got a lot of other uh questions or thoughts uh what what you got there bill Bant? here's just a silly question so that bed from the fortress of solitude does that look like the most comfortable <laughs> bed in the world or what? It really does. I thought about it. I thought about it for a solid minute because it looks like a giant silver bean bag that you could just be swallowed by and just lose yourself in in the best possible way and get the deepest sleep ever. But then, yeah, I don't know. It looks like it would be a little difficult to get out of probably. Not that that's the most important thing. Yeah, I don't think it would be the best bed for sexy time. But right, if sure. I, yeah, if I wanted to sleep for like a week, give me that bed. Yeah, it's great. All right. So, okay, you've established that you have seen the Richard Donner cut. Correct. And here's a thought. I propose that we watch the Richard Donner cut at some point and do another podcast. Another. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was going to suggest that on, also. Based on yes. that. Yeah. That would be fun to yeah. do. Yes, definitely a future episode. Very cool. All right, Bill Bant. Here's some big questions. I'll just start with this one. And here's the big one. Uh, favorite Superman actor? Well, depending on your answer, maybe second favorite. I mean, I was a big fan of Smallville, so maybe Tom Welling. Yeah. But I do like Henry Cavill. I think he looks the most, I think, like Superman. But Christopher Reeve is still my favorite. I agree. Uh, my one and two are, are Reeve and Cavill. I thought Tom Welling was very good. I've, you don't see a lot of him as Superman, I right. mean, it's mainly Clark, Clark yeah. Kent, but still, I mean, he, or yeah, he's got the powers. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's it's all it's always been Christopher Reeve, and I think Henry Cavill was probably underrated and underused. I'm not a huge fan of the Zack Snyder films, so that's just not quite my flavor. But I thought he still had a lot of potential, and I wish Henry Cavill was still Superman. Here's a tough one for you, man. What's the most identifiable movie theme song? Superman? Jaws? Star Wars? Indiana Jones? E.T.? I should say most identifiable John Williams movie theme oh, song. Oh, I know. You know I always get pumped at the John Williams concert when he plays Superman. Yeah. Uh, I might think of Jaws theme. Yeah, I, I think it, it probably is. 
I think it has to be, right? And it's two notes. Mm-hmm. And you're already... Oh, Jaws. I should have stated most quickly or... Yeah. Oh, quickly I, identifiable. Identifiable. I can name that song. theme song in two notes. Right. That's how I should have worded it. Most quickly identifiable theme song. It'd still be Jaws. Yeah. We know that your favorite Superman TV series is Smallville. Bill Bant, have you seen Superman and Lois, the CW show? I'll be honest. I never watched any of the other ones. It's pretty good. I've checked out a little bit of it. I didn't see the Terry Hatcher one. Was that the one with Gene Kane in it too? That was the, yeah, that was Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman. Yeah. All right. Well, any ideas or thoughts on the best casting of a superhero or supervillain? Uh, we already said your favorite Superman actor was Christopher Reeve, but the best casting of a superhero in general, film superhero. I don't know, maybe Robert Downey Jr. was Iron Man. That really worked. I had him on my list. It's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Well, I already said, I mean, Christopher Reeve's my guy. Right. But yeah, I'd put Downey Jr. on there for superheroes. I mean, I'm a big Keaton fan. It's Batman. I thought that was pretty inspired casting. Yeah. I think it's one of those we didn't know how it was going to work. Well, right. I guess the it's same just thing. The surprise yeah. of it maybe, you know, has an you know, had a had an effect. I think Gal Gadot was pretty pretty well cast as True. a woman. That's a good one. When you go super villain, it's it gets a little tough. You got your jokers. Oh, yeah, that's true. Do you love me Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor from Superman 1 for sure. People love Tom Hiddleston as Loki. Thought Josh Brolin yeah. was pretty good yeah. as Thanos. Absolutely. Also, when it comes to the casting of a superhero, I just want to pay my respect to Chadwick Boseman was, I think, really great as the Black Panther. It just would have, it's obviously uh, sad that he passed, but because it would have been great to see what he would have been able to do with that role moving forward. It was taken away from us way too soon. It just really sucked. Yeah. Good points all around. Good questions. Good thoughts. Here's my last one, Bill Bant. How does Lois Lane maintain her weight with a steady diet of cigarettes and burgers with everything on it? Still has a young metabolism. Yeah. I wonder how old she's supposed to be. Yeah. Mid thirties. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Margot Kidder is pretty thin in this movie and she's just. No, I know. There's that, you know, she wants to drink all that orange juice and then she's got that ashtray full of. being healthy yet. Yeah. Right. Ugh. Gross. Cigarette product placement. Right there. This would be a turnoff to me. Different time. Different time. The good old early 80s. Are we ready to wrap this baby up? Let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five Phantom Zones, what do you give Superman to? Wow. Bill Bant. This was tough, man. What's the rating system? I, I'm already thinking about my answer and I, I always, I'm not listening and I apologize. This is the second time this has happened. Phantom Zones, is it? Got it. I'm giving this 3.5 Phantom Zones. I, man, was really of two minds about this movie now. I'll admit, man, this viewing threw me a curveball. There's still so much that I like, and there's so much that is just plain silly. I will say watching it for a second time, I wasn't as averse to some of the overt comedy. But after doing the research and seeing the different styles that Lester and Donner had. I definitely missed the Richard Donner look and the feel from the first film. But hey, Christopher Reeve, still outstanding as Superman. He's so damn earnest and genuine. It's really amazing. Terrence Stamp, still very potent as Zod. He's got a wonderful command and delivery, but big old Nan is pretty damn cheesy and the effects are pretty dated. And I wanted more Gene Hackman in this. 
Now, is it still fun? Of course it is. Is it the best film of the franchise as we once thought? I don't think so. I'm going back to number one. That's going to be the, the best for me, at least in the, in the Christopher Reeve films, for sure. That's my take. I, I can't wait to see the Richard Donner cut and do the pod part two. The pod continues for this film because it was a bit jarring. I found the fun in it still and really embraced the nostalgic attachment to this. Uh, this I loved as a kid and I have really fond memories of it. For me, the kid in me was going to give it a you know four and a half or a five. I'm right there with you. Three and a half. I was surprised how much of it kind of bothered me a little bit, but I still love the fact you have Superman going off against three of his equals. And yeah, that's what makes it interesting. I just wish it got to it a little bit quicker, but Terrence Stamp and Christopher Reeve, there are reasons one and two why you should go back and watch it. It is certainly a lot different than how superhero movies are done today. So it might be a little bit surprising if you haven't watched it in a while, but you should definitely check it out. And I'm with you too. I think the first one's now gone to the top of the list and I might have to watch it just to double check to make sure that it is. I know, right? That's the thing is that as I recall, because I've seen Superman one not too long ago and I felt for the most part it held up. And I think that's just kind of an issue with the second one is that Overall, I'm not sure it holds up that well, and that's okay. These movies are old now, and it happens. It's just, it kind of, it is a little heartbreaking to say it when I just loved it so much as a exactly. kid. Exactly. You know? All right, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. If you have any comments, questions, or recipes to share, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Have an excellent week, everyone. Superman! Thank God! I mean, get him! Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>